Hi. Hello, how are you? Hello. Should we tell the truth? <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh, this is hard. They made me cry. Couldn't imagine talking about it. It's how we feel. <laughs> the thing is, it comes from the heart. And it is also worth it. My name is Tess and welcome to the Kesar podcast. I want to begin today by acknowledging this conversation is taking place on the traditional lands of the Dharawal people. I'd like to pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge their long and continued relationship to this land. In today's episode, we'll be chatting to one of our caseworkers who is working in our Brighter Futures team in the Illawarra. Today's topic is around domestic violence. We understand this is a sensitive subject, and if our conversation today triggers any negative emotions or past trauma, we encourage you to contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or Beyond Blue on 1300 224 636. They're both free to call and provide great crisis and mental health support. So, welcome. Thank you. <laughs> I would love for you to introduce yourself. So, um, your name and what you do here at Kessa. Yeah, so my name's Jennifer and I'm one of the Brighter Futures caseworkers here. So, today we're talking about domestic violence and um, you've worked a lot in this space. So, would you mind talking about your experience and um, sort of the jobs you've had, the people you've come in mm -hmm. contact with um, yep. throughout your time? Yep, so before Brighter Futures, I was working as an early intervention prevention caseworker. Um, so that was pretty much working with mums who had children under the age of 12 who were experiencing domestic violence or who had left domestic violence. Um, so yeah, I was doing that for about a year and I was also in the local police station a few days a week working with people who would walk in who had experienced domestic violence. So that could be like a young person who parents were going through DB or a mum who was experiencing DB or just a woman, you know, and that varied from women and men from like 16, 17 year olds to... I had a woman who was in her 80s. So, yeah, worked with a whole bunch of different people around different things. Um, because I was in the station a lot, it was more about ABO support. So if somebody came in wanting to make a statement for an ABO, we would usually go in and support them through that. Um, also court support. So when they were going through court in relation to charges or DB incidents or anything like that. And... Yeah, just parenting support as well with the mums. And while I was doing all of that, I was also running programs in schools, teaching at-risk youth about DV, mental health, sexual health, and all that type of stuff. So, yeah. How do you feel like the mix of all that sort of impacted the way you dealt with each spot at the time? Like, you're kind of, sounds like you were working with lots of different parts of the families. Mm -hmm. Um, separately but mm -hmm. how did that mix sort yeah, of feel it was a, like when you were working yeah it was a really good mix because you know I'd work with kids who were witnessing their parents go through DV or them being victims of the domestic violence and then I'd also work with a mum who would for example think oh we're fighting in the home and this and this is happening but 
my kids are asleep and they don't hear it. And then from my experience working with youth, I'm like, well, actually, you know, they are hearing it and they do see it. Even if you try to hide it the best you can, it is still there. So having that experience and knowledge of both sides was really beneficial in giving like a well-rounded support program. Can you chat to us a little bit about your experience and how that shaped how you do the work here now at Care South? Mm. Um, Because the Brighter Futures program is something a little bit different to what you've done as well. So, Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So I guess like the main difference between my past job and Brighter Futures is Brighter Futures is more for child protection and risk of significant harm. So you deal with more mental health, drug and alcohol, all that type of stuff, as well as DV. So DV isn't the main point of call a lot of the time, but it still is relevant in a lot of ways anyway, because even though you, like, you know what an abusive relationship looks like from working in domestic violence, but just because it's an abuse, you've worked in abusive relationships with people, you can still witness that with other things. So like drug and alcohol abuse, mental health, like it's an abuse within yourself. So that still works in both mm. ways, I guess. Mm. So like learning how to be so therapeutic and providing choice and a safe space is still relevant with a lot of other families. Because, you know, going through child protection and all the allegations being made, they feel like they're not heard and they felt like they're not listened to at all. So again, still providing that safe space really works wonders as well. Like I know with a few of my families that I work with now, the first few times I visited them, we didn't even touch on any allegations or any casework. It was just building that relationship because, yeah, they didn't have that before. And sometimes I'm the first one that they've actually had a stronger connection with. So, yeah. Mm. I think building strong relationships is something that um, we focus on quite a lot here. Mm, For sure. Yeah. And just being authentic. And not lying, because people can see straight through that. Mm. Mm. They can. 2020 was obviously an extremely challenging year for people across the globe. Um, We had bush... In Australia, we had bushfires, floods, and obviously a pandemic. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you talk maybe about the impact that had on individuals and families suffering with domestic violence Mm -hmm. so I started working in DV just after the bushfires had happened Um, so I walked into a bit of a crisis situation like all the workers were were all buckling down for a huge rise in DV um, which usually takes a few months to occur after a natural disaster because in the past we were we looked at past statistics and how it increased like four times and whatnot um but it usually takes a few months because yeah that's that's when all the repercussions start so like unemployment mental health homelessness like after that six weeks of crisis you're like oh this is actually my new life now um but those months were kind of halted because of the pandemic so it kind of the increase didn't really start until we were actually out of lockdown because a lot of my families that I was working with, everything went to phone calls, like they couldn't come to the office and I was working from home. So it was hard to have that conversation, especially with 
mums and individuals who had their partner who was perpetrating violence in the home still. So, like, they could talk about it and, like, even with the mums, we would have a discussion, but then they got to hang up and then teach their kid math. Like, that was a lot for them to handle. So we actually went, or I went a little bit quiet with my work. But then once we were allowed out, so like June, June, July, it was when a huge increase happened. So my workload tripled. Um, so yeah, that was a bit difficult. And then, you know, having that workload triple, but trying to give the best care possible with the limited hours that you get with non-government because of the lack of funding and competing stuff. Um, yeah, it was really difficult. And I think a lot of my families did struggle as well with the added layer of the government telling you you can't leave the home for this, this and that because, you know, they've been told by their perpetrator that like they've been controlled and coerced and whatnot. So some of my families really doubled down on those rules and refused to leave. And I think they're still refusing to leave their homes now. And then there was other ones who were just like, stuff it, I don't care, I'm going out. You know, I've been controlled once, I don't want to be controlled again. So, um, yeah, that trauma came out a lot of different ways, which mm. was really interesting. And mm. a lot of us didn't think it would come out to that extreme. Mm. Um, so, yeah. So extreme on either ends of the scale yeah. as well. Yeah, um, for sure. Mm. Like, I know I had one mum who had severe anxiety and PTSD. And she, yeah, doubled down with her little one. And she refused to leave the home for anything. And even though schools were open for families who needed it, she didn't identify that she needed it because she wasn't an essential worker. And I said, yes, they're open for essential workers, but they're also open for kids who need to get away from homes, and I really think your little one needs to. Mm. But um, she was so horrified that she was breaking a rule because, you know, when she broke rules in the past, bad things would happen, so she didn't want to do that again. And then, yeah, I had the other end who was just like, I don't care, I've been told what to do my whole life. I've finally gotten out of it. No one can tell me what to do now. So, yeah, I think it comes down to what you've experienced, how you're reacting to it now, and what level of survival you're at, like if, and how long you've been out of that domestic violence cycle. Because does the duality of those kind of extreme reactions um, come out of, yeah, where you are in your sort of, like, mm. yeah, survivor journey? Yeah, I think so. So, like, the one who had anxiety and stuff, she had been out of the relationship for about three or four years but was still constantly being harassed by the perpetrator whereas the other family who just thought not not doing it had been out for about four or five years and hadn't had any conversation with them so I think they had experienced their freedom and what they could actually do in their life so they didn't want to be held back down again so yeah Interesting. So you talked about working with at-risk youth um, mm-hmm. in your experience um, and that's a lot of what we do at Care South. What kind of awareness could we bring um, to domestic violence when it comes to our youth, mm-hmm. maybe both from the youth who are in the home and maybe youth who haven't experienced mm-hmm. um, being at the hands of domestic violence yeah, so the groups I used to run were for at-risk, so that didn't necessarily mean DB. That also meant you know, lower socioeconomic status, less of in- lack of engagement with schools, um, mental health, stuff like that. Um, but every group I would run a healthy relationship session and a consent session. So we teach about what consent is, how you can give it, 
um, what isn't consent. So, for example, a lot of kids didn't realise if you're under the influence of drugs and alcohol, you can't actually give consent. Um, that was really interesting for all of them to know. And in the healthy relationship, we do talk about DV, but more often than not, we're a bit hesitant on using those words because a lot of the time, you know, they don't realise what they see at home is actually DV. Mm. Um, so we talk about, you know, what are red flags? What are green flags? What's good? What's bad? What are traits of a healthy relationship? And then we dive into all the types of DV and what they may look like. Um, like there was a activity at the start we used to do and we'd have things that you would do in a relationship. So like hold hands, kiss in public. And then the questions would get progressively worse. So it'd be like, you know, having passwords to all my accounts, telling me who I can and can't see, all that type of stuff. And then the last one would be punching me. And usually everyone's like, well, that's not okay. I'm like, okay, interesting. So if you're on your first date and, you know, they punch you in the face, they're like, oh, well, then I'd leave. And I was like, okay, cool. But what happens if, you know, they start constantly wanting to touch you in public, you know, being a bit cautious about who you're hanging out with, slowly breaking you away from your social supports. Then they have your passwords for everything. So all your bank accounts, your social medias, your phone passwords. And then let's say 10, 10 years down the track, all that's happening and then they hit you, is it easier or harder to leave? And they say, oh, it's actually a lot harder. Mm-hmm. So just giving them those food for thought type of things and them slowly figuring it out on their own. And, yeah, the amount of times we would have kids disclose there was actually DV happening in their home and they didn't realise um, was really sad to see but also not good but beneficial that they are aware of what it is. And then from there they're like, well, what do we do? And I think kids feel like they don't really have a voice and they're like, well, it's not my problem. And, you know, I'm just a kid, no one listens to me. So providing a space where they can actually speak and feel validated. Because every time we'd start the group, none of them would really care. Like they just thought, I'm just there to get the money and then get out. Whereas I'd sit there and be like, no, this is for you guys. What do you guys want to learn? What do you guys want to talk about? And stuff like that. And then by the end of the group, they'd feel so much more empowered and validated and want to speak to other people about it and stuff. So, yeah, I guess just providing a space for Mm. them and for them to feel heard Mm. and validated. And do you think you can... Do you think as individuals in the community, whether you work in in this kind of sector or not, do you feel like you can still create those spaces um, for for youth um, at risk or not to... Yeah, for sure. I think so. I think, you know, just actually listening to them. Like, even if what they're saying you don't agree with or if, you know, you're a bit sceptical on it, like, that's what they're witnessing and that's what they're experiencing and that's their life. Like, you don't know what they're going through. Even if they explain to you every second of their day, you still don't know what they're feeling. Because, yeah, like, you haven't lived it. They're the experts in their life. So yeah listen to them how you would listen to like a doctor or something so yeah I think anyone can really just active listening show that you're actually interested and wanting to learn and yeah you get a lot more out of them that way if someone's disclosing something to you what are some of the things that you shouldn't say um if someone is like yeah you've created this safe space Mm -hmm. um they feel comfortable enough to disclose and what you're hearing is sometimes confronting. Um, what are some of the things not to say? Mm. I guess with young people, it's more, you know, just 
being a bit sceptical and asking them, like, oh, did that really happen or was it actually this way or, yeah, like, trying to... You may think that you're trying to get more a better answer and a stronger answer out of them, but in reality, they may be taking it as, a, oh, you don't believe me. Like, you're just trying to find flaws in my story. Um, so, yeah, like, just listening and be like, wow, that's really shit. Mm. Like, the amount of times I'd have kids disclose things not necessarily dv but even just like bullying in school or something i'd be like wow that's really crap i'm sorry like what would you like me to do mm. and asking them what they want because sometimes i just want to say it and then it'd be out and then it'd be done like sometimes i don't want anything happening sometimes i just need somebody to listen to because they don't have that at home sometimes mm. and then with adults who are finally saying like who are discussing their domestic violence and stuff and again like you're trying to narrow down and get the specific question and answers and stuff but because of what they've been through is so traumatic their brain shuts down when they go through it so the first thing that shuts down in your brain is your memory so you're not going to remember everything crystal clear and that's fine and sometimes like I witnessed it with when they've made statements for AVOs and stuff with police officers that the police officers say well you're not 100% sure on your story so no this is bullshit you're lying all that type of stuff where it's just they genuinely can't because their memories are shot so yeah just being like I believe you what would you like me to do Mm. so yeah yeah I think it's really good advice is there anything else we can do to support people in DB relationships um I think a big thing that DB perpetrators like to do is isolate um, so even if you notice your friends slowly withdrawing or a family member or even like a student that you have or anyone, just still be there and just say, you know, if you ever need something, let me know and I can try and help you the best that I can. Um, because, yeah, I think a large part from what I've witnessed with my families in the past was, you know, it was harder for them to leave or to find support because I had no one and the only person that they had was their perpetrator so yeah just having another safe space for them to go to as hard as it is to see a family member or friend go through that type of stuff yeah just being there and just not letting go and not giving up what are the most challenging parts of what you do and what are the most rewarding parts of what you do the most challenging would probably be when you're working with a family and they don't realise what they're going through as domestic violence or they're not ready to admit that yet. So, um, yeah, I've worked with a few women and children who don't want to accept that it is domestic violence or that they're not ready to leave yet. And even though you know it's dangerous and you know that it's bad, you have to respect their wish. And I guess that's also challenging in of itself as well, trying to organise and arrange support for domestic violence but for them not to realise it's domestic violence support. So like getting them involved in healthy relationship programs and speaking to counsellors and getting them involved with other domestic violence services. Mm -hmm. Um, Just so when they are ready to leave, they have that group around them. And like I noticed with a lot of my at-risk youth back in the day as well, you would discuss domestic violence and healthy relationships and then that was like their little light switch. They're like, oh, this is actually not good. Um, It's hard to do that with families when they refuse to admit it. So I guess the way I try to navigate it is, you know, 
speak about red flags and green flags and what's good about the relationship, what's not so good about the relationship, and then getting them into healthy relationship programs and stuff. And then the most rewarding is seeing how far they come. Like, you know, sometimes you go in and they're a shell of a person. Like, they don't have... They feel like they have no power, no choice, no safety. And then you slowly build up their self-esteem and their self-worth and they feel like they can actually do this and they can live. Um, Yeah, because, like, it's... I've been to a family before and they were yeah really low self-esteem and I'd ask them so like what would you like me to help you with and they'd be like I don't know so even starting off with okay today we can talk about this this or that what would you like to do so still controlling what they're wanting to do but not saying this is what we're doing today this is what you need to do this is how it needs to be done Mm. so they don't feel so overwhelmed and concerned and frightened and stuff Mm. so yeah I guess yeah benefit is you get to see how far they come and progress, which mm. is awesome. Yeah. Um, and I assume that everyone gets to different parts of their journey at different times. So there are mm-hmm. some families that um, it takes a really long time, depending on where they start and, mm-hmm. and sort of what their situations are. Yeah, for um, sure. So. Yeah, like sometimes I'll have, like in my past job, there was a woman who came in and just wanted everything sorted straight away. So, you know, she had 10 things she wanted to get done. We'd get those 10 things done within two weeks. Mm. And she was like, cool, nice, that's it. And then there was another family that I didn't progress anywhere for three months because they were just stuck in their little circle and refused to move because that was their little comfort zone. Mm. And I guess just walking with them, not dragging them along, Mm. I think is a really big thing as well. Mm. Like working at their pace. Because I know a lot of the time I would love to work quicker, but if they're comfortable where they are and they don't want to move then we like you leave them there and you say okay well like let's figure out other things we can do when you're ready Mm. and this is what it's going to look like and this is what may happen this is what also may happen Mm. because I think they're scared of the unknown a lot of the time as well and they're scared what they've been through might happen again Mm. so yeah just navigating that Mm. I feel like being scared of the unknown is something that that everyone deals with yeah, in for their sure. own way. So mm-hmm. I feel like um, for them it's multiplied. Yeah, for sure. By a lot. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, Jen, for coming on our podcast. Thank you And telling us a little bit more about your experience and giving us some food for thought um, to move forward with. Awesome. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening to our Care South podcast today. If anything has triggered you, head to our website, caresouth.org.au forward slash the Care South podcast for helpline information, along with show notes, resources, and previous episodes.